0: Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter four, where we will have a follow-up message to what was a very timely message last week on the importance of rest. And if you're like me, you listen to a message like that, you, you read passages of scripture that are calling us to rest, and you are once again reminded of how important it is for our lives to just be at rest. Timely message for me this week, and it taught me what I think is the second layer of this lesson, uh, because uh, we were hit with what appears to be going around the, the sick bug that's going around, and, and so I uh, got the joy and the privilege to serve a bunch of sick kids in my household this week, and uh, I don't know a lot about being a nurse, but I know that some of the best medicine is just resting And so I was just trying to uh, encourage my kids to do what I think the word is encouraging us to do, which is to find rest. And that was an especially difficult uh, exhortation, let's call it, for my youngest child, a four-year-old boy. Uh, He is at a stage of his life that maybe he will always be in, where he just loves to bounce around the house. (laughs) And so for me to, to, to encourage him to rest was a challenge. Of course, the sickness will cause you to, to uh, you know, it's forcing you to lay down at times. And um, as soon as I would give him his medicine and he would start to feel better, uh, he would immediately do everything he could to use whatever energy he got to not rest. In fact, there was one moment where uh, the, clearly the fever reducer was, was taking its effect, and he looked at me, and he's just coming to, me, and he says, can I please go jump on your bed? <laughs> it's like, all he wants to do is not rest. It's a, a picture, of course, seen in a four-year-old, not, like, not unlike many times, that is for our lives as well. As much as you enjoyed a sermon last week on the importance of rest for your souls, uh, you no doubt find it challenging to actually partake in rest. This week, we're going to look at a continuation of the message, and I, and I hope a continuation of the answer on, on how to get it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, and I can tell you out on, on the onset, it, it's the importance of rest and how hard it is to actually implement it in your life. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, let us therefore... Be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This is almost a paradox. It's saying, with the importance of rest in mind, something that we're going to review, let us work very hard. Let us be diligent. That that original word is, is a word to say, let's make strong effort to rest, to work hard, to cease from work, to strive not to strive. And it is, in a sense, something that is real, not just of the rest that is being spoken of in this passage of scripture, but the importance of physical rest for your body. All of you have probably heard that you need a good eight hours of sleep. It's just fundamental to health and longevity all of the benefits that come from just taking care of your sleep habits, and how many of you just push that envelope. Even in the, the last week, you hear a message on rest, and you have to go to bed, get ready for the morning, and you're going to push the envelope of the weekend because Sunday's fun, so stay up a little bit later, and you're setting the alarm knowing six hours is probably good. And it's, of course, not what we're after this morning. This, this message is not just a, a, a commercial break to remind the Hebrew audience how important sleep is. This is not a message about physical rest. But physical rest does give you a picture at how diligent you have to be. People who get rest are disciplined. And people who find the rest that is being offered through this picture that we're going to look at, they're people who understand that it is a work of diligence. And so we're going to answer two simple questions. What is that rest? As it says in verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. It's a specific rest that we're talking about. And the second question that any good student would be asking is, how then would you enter rest? Before we answer, I I will point out that this does come as a warning. This is not a good advice sermon this is not a life pro tip or spiritual, uh, sage sermon. This is saying, if you fail to find this rest, if you fail to properly allow God to care for your soul, it says in verse 11, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. There is something at stake for the health of your life and following Christ that if you're not able to grasp what is, what this is after, you are putting yourself in danger of falling away and going into disobedience. So let's answer the first question. What is this picture of rest that the Hebrew author finds so important for these believers? These believers who are going through, without specific details, a crisis of the faith. They've been following Jesus and now it's getting hard, whether by persecution, whether by outcast, whether by their own... Weariness of trying to follow Jesus in the midst of everything they once knew. He says, You have to find the rest. Let's look at the answer that was already given to us in the beginning of the chapter. It is going to come to us first by picture of a rest that was offered to the people of God through the once leader, Moses. It says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have comfort, could have come short of it. This is a therefore in conclusion to Psalm 95 that gave a picture of people who did not trust God in entering into the promised land. That's why he said, a promise remains, that rest is attached to a promise of God. God offered them a vision of something he had planned for them that was going to be good, it was going to be restful, and it came in the form of a promise they needed to trust him for it. And it says by looking at Psalm 95, they didn't. But it's a promise. That's what the rest is attached to. What was the re- what was the promise? As as given to us in the picture of Psalm chapter ninety five, the children of Israel in the desert. Here in here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter six. Moses speaking to the people of Israel, he's given them the law, he's reminding them that this is their covenant with God, and he has given them a promise of rest. And this is what he says. Verse three of Deuteronomy chapter six. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, the, the commandments that it may be well with you. And you may multiply, multiply greatly as the Lord God of your father has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a phrase that no doubt you have heard as these descriptors of the promised land. And I have to say, we've, we're coming up on one year since our church took a small a team of people over to this promised land. It is a beautiful and luscious garden of a land. And you have to try to, to, to overcome the assumption you have that it's just this land flowing with milk and honey, you know that, that God was gonna give it to them, and try to understand how weary they must have been They had been set free from literal slavery where they were in the the yoke of bondage working for the heavy hand of Pharaoh and they were delivered by miracle through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they trusted and followed God all the way up until the River Jordan where God said, I'm going to give you this land and it's awesome. Compare it to the wilderness. This is a land where there's, luscious gardens. There's rivers flowing. The, the picture of milk and honey is to say, it's going to be so easy to live in this land. He'll, he'll go on to give descriptions that they're going to inherit this land where there's vineyards that were already planted. They don't have to dig them. They don't have to plant them. There's wells that are already dug. You don't have to do any work to get the water. The wells will be waiting for you. And there are houses that are already built. It is a vision of an absolute blessing that has nothing to do with their own efforts. It's just a gift of God. And can you see now the picture of rest? They go from slavery and desert to a land that has everything. It is the best earthly description you can have for rest. In that day, it was heaven on earth. And he says, this rest was a promise that they had to believe in. And the rest that now you are being offered, the rest that says, you must be so diligent to enter the rest. It's a promise. It, 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 it's a survey of Hebrews thus far to help us understand Our rest is a promise as well. Our rest is a promise that we are not looking for land. He's not taking us to a, a place where everything is set up and we can just walk right in. But the rest is salvation. So he says, don't neglect this great salvation you have. The captain of your salvation. That you will be called sons of glory. Partakers of the heavenly calling. There's now a vision for those who have seen Christ that is the fullness and the eternal completion of the picture of the nation of Israel following, following Moses to the Jordan River. And it's a promise that is not yet. All of you come to hear this vision of a heavenly, eternal rest with God that you have to receive by faith that you have to trust that God is good and that he has saved you from some form of spiritual sin that was slavery and he has brought you thus far through his own version of faithfulness and provision of your life and you still have this vision where Jesus is going to take you home and you have a decision to make. Will you enter into a peace with the vision of rest that you have in Christ? That is the rest that, the author of Hebrews is talking about. Now the question is, how do you receive it? How do you enter it, as it says? Go into that. Receive it this morning and, and be diligent to continue in it. I think sometimes for the answers to these questions, we look at the opposite or the antithesis of it. What this isn't. How did they lose their rest? How did... The Psalm 95 give a recap of their relationship with God where he says, and I swore in my wrath they wouldn't enter my rest. Well, look what it says also in Hebrews chapter 4. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Isn't that interesting? We think of the gospel in our context, but the good news message was also preached to them in their context. When Moses said... See this land flowing with milk and honey? It's going to be yours. That was great news for them. They were ready. They were worn out and they were tired. And they heard a message of God's goodness giving them a gift. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So the answer is to how we enter. First, we look at how you don't enter. It says that they did not enter. They died in the wilderness because it wasn't mixed with faith. They stopped believing the word. The, the good news that they heard, the vision that they had, the faithfulness they had received, it said it was not met with faith. There was a crisis in their faith they stopped believing in God. In fact, you can see in verse 19 of chapter three, so they could not enter in because of unbelief. And so we think of the unrest of the soul for the believers among us. We think of the crisis of faith that no doubt every single one of us will have a moment with. And the fastest way to lose the peace of God in your life and in your heart and to go into a category of unrest is to look at whatever is in front of you. For them, there were these giant humans, the offspring of the Nephilim. They were giants. And compared to these giants, the Israelites felt like grasshoppers. And that crisis of faith was so big that they no longer believed the word that they heard that God was in fact going to give them this land. And you'll have a crisis of faith, and you have a gospel that has been preached to you. And you, right now, those of you, many of you, have put your faith, your a saving faith, in the gospel, and you've you've been delivered. You're now qualified. The gospel is preached. God loves you. Gospel preached. He demonstrates his love for you that while you were still a sinner in bondage to sin, he sent his son to hang on a cross. While you were dead in sin, he paid the price. He paid your debt. That's the gospel preached. And then something happens. There's a crisis of faith. You see something that is gone into your horizon that seems bigger than God's love for you. And it seems to be a duty of a pastor to just serve the people of God over and over again seasonally to say God still loves you. Just this week, I had someone come into the church and say, I don't know, I don't feel worthy anymore. He's being tempted by unbelief in the gospel. God loved him when he was a sinner. God loves him as he is sanctifying him. The gospel is preached. It says that you are not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your sins have been forgiven, removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And no doubt, some of you have fallen into temptation and you've experienced sin once again. Some of you experienced sin this week. Some people are not at church because of something that happened last night. And they're being tempted to not believe the gospel. That where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's the gospel preached. And they, were now, they are now going into a category of unrest. Does God love me? Can God forgive me? We live in a strange time where the gospel is at odds with the culture. And here's a fundamental truth, good news for all of you who believe this morning. Jesus says that on the foundation of the confession of Christ, he builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. And yet, sometimes the gates of hell seem to be prevailing, don't they? And we look out into the inhabitants of our land, the inhabitants of our culture, the inhabitants of our governments, And we think, I'm not so sure that it still applies. And we're being tempted by disbelief, and where we begin to disbelieve that God's kingdom will prevail in the midst of the most ungodly culture, we go into a category of unrest. We begin to worry. And we begin to take our eyes off Jesus and put our eyes on all sorts of other things that we may think are the solution. So that's how we lose the rest. James says, for he who doubts is like a wave of sea driven and tossed by the wind. Unrest comes from unbelief. So how do we now take ground on diligence to enter the rest? How do we go in? Well, it's the opposite of how we lose it. And this is why, this is the context of a verse that is so powerful to help us understand why it is we're people of the word, why it is we gather the way that we do and devote our hearts and minds to an expose of God's word week by week and in your private time, day by day. Because you enter into the the rest by continuing to believe the word. And now you look at verse 12. Verse 12. Therefore, it's connected to the command to be diligent. Therefore, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Believe the word. Continue to receive the word that was preached. And we could look at every description that we just read and we could probably spend weeks upon weeks exalting the power of the word of God. But to help us understand why he says it now, let's just consider a few of the statements that have just been read. For the word of God is living. It's alive. It is not a collection of historical stories that help us understand how ancients used to live. It is not simply a collection of wise advice that worked at one time and we have to kind of test out for our time. The author is saying, this word is still alive. And it, doesn't it help us make sense of the entire way this sermon is delivered to this audience, the, the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, it is an exaltation of the word of God so that these people could see more clearly. He quotes the Psalms all through chapter one. Then to help us understand Christ's position with humanity, he said, Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of? Him? You've given him dominion and honor, put all things under his feet. That's the word. And then he says, consider Psalm chapter 95. When we got a picture of people who followed God and then stopped believing him and they died in their rebellion, that is not just a story of the nation of Israel. That is a story for people who follow Jesus and stop believing. That's still alive. And that is why we open this and we preach it And we listen to it, not just the way it spoke to the original audience, but the way that it speaks to us now. We got an example of this just last Wednesday. I'm going to continue to talk about Wednesdays because I want to encourage all of you, if you can, to come to Tom Velasco's midweek service where we're going through the law. It works perfectly with Hebrews. Last Wednesday, Tom shared on the seventh commandment, which is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. A very serious command with very serious consequences. And the way that he shared the word to make the word come alive in warning us and exhorting us and cautioning us against what may happen if we fall into this temptation, he shared a living story from 2 Samuel. He said, do you see what happened when David was not leading the way that he should lead? And he was going into areas where he knew temptation would be waiting for him. And he invited Bathsheba into his house, just pushing the line of compromise. And then when he did compromise, he covered it and sin begets sin. And then God exposed him and he had to repent and consequences were radical. That's what happens when you commit adultery. It's a living story. It's a living caution. It's a living exhortation. And it's a living uh, call to rebuke for all of us who have to overcome that temptation. The word is alive. And some translations go on to say, instead of living and powerful, says, living and active. And I think that's such an important word to point out because what the author of Hebrews is saying is, look at their example. They heard word of the promise, but as soon as they saw a, a, a vision of giants that seemed bigger than the promise, it seems as though they thought the word had met its match, that the word uh, had, had an expiration date. It was all the way through the wilderness until the Jordan. He says, no, it's still active. The word that was preached to them in Egypt, the word that was shared with them in the wilderness, the word that was given them a vision of the promised land, never expired. And know that the word of God that has reached your heart to make you alive, to receive the gospel of Christ, the word that does get challenged by the inhabitants of our land and the temptations in the crisis of your faith is still active. God still loves you. God still forgives you. You're still not condemned in Christ. God's kingdom still prevails. God still saves you by grace and not by work. God still has good works that he's prepared beforehand and it does not expire. And I think that is, for a moment, a good Caution for some of us who, when we go through the crisis of faith, and I certainly feel like I sometimes push people's nerve on this, and you hear someone share a moment of where the word could speak to you. You say, man, I'm just so confused in my life right now. I don't know what I'm doing. And someone says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in God with all your heart. Acknowledge him and he'll direct your steps. And sometimes when we're in that crisis of faith and we're starting to get tempted into the the category of unrest, we say, don't give me the platitude right now. I've heard that. I don't need that. Actually, you do need that. The word is still active. Even when you're in this moment of feeling like you just need some fresh counsel, it's the word you need. You're going through something that seems so mysterious. Like, why did God do this? I felt like I was going this way and it just didn't work out. And I'm going here. And someone says to you, you know, just so you know. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And you think, I can't hear that now. Don't harden your heart. It's not a Christian platitude. The word is living and it is active. It's for the moment that you sometimes snarl at it. And it has power to change you from a person that's being tempted to go into a place of dying in wilderness and falling to being refreshed and renewed back to the rest of the promise. You need to rest in that promise. It goes on to say, That it is sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. This is now the power of the word to go far beyond sometimes what we even want. That the word of God, when it's having its effect, when you are willing to be diligent to allow the word of God to penetrate your heart, it'll go to depths of you that you don't even know are there. This is the example of the power of God, or the power of God's word. I want to take just a a brief moment as we consider the, the precision of the word scapel as an example of its power to diagnose who you actually are, to exalt the word above any preacher messenger, Bible study tool, journal time. The power of the word to bring you to a place of rest in the peace of God is to the glory of God and God alone. And sometimes I think we, it's nothing, nothing wrong. We're, 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 we're students, we, we've been created with a way to learn. But the best preacher And the the best sermons, the best study tools are nothing without the word. I'll share a quote that spoke to me. I hope it encourages you. Some people seem to believe that the word of God is a dead book that some charismatic preacher brings to life. In reality, the word is a living and powerful book and the preacher would be dead without it. I appreciate that so much. (laughs) I have nothing to offer you. If only you would have met me before I ever opened this word and found power to change my life by the grace of God and encourage others, I had no good advice. Week by week, I am emptied of anything that I could ever offer you other than trying to understand how the word of God is going to speak to God's people. And I point out that it's giving us a a metaphor once again of of our physical bodies in the way that we are so uniquely made. Another testament to our amazing and creative God in the way that he made us with a a soul, just the whole of our being and a spirit which can animate the glory of God. Our, Our bodies connected together by joints and bones and marrow, the, the, the precision. What an interesting bit of anatomy to point out. That there is bone, and then within the bone, there's this fatty tissue called marrow that, that produces the, the blood for the bone, the life for the bones. Intricate design. And it also, if we're willing to allow it to speak to us, shows us in a way that we need to hear sometimes, That if we will allow the Bible to do its work, we will know ourselves more than through any kind of examination in the mirror or self-reflection. God knows you more than you know yourself, and he knows how to diagnose what you need. I think of blood work for this, because not long ago my wife had to do some blood work. And it was a fascinating process. They draw her blood, they send it into a lab, and they look at it through a microscope. And as you examine blood through a microscope, you can diagnose all sorts of things that come from the blood work. In my wife's case, she was iron deficient. And so with iron supplements, she solved some chronic fatigue she was having. It's like, wow, modern medicine. She would never have known that lest someone took it under the microscope and told her what she needed by examining her blood. This is the word of God for your life now, not for just your body. But the word of God wants your life and all of the offices that your life entails. The word of God wants your marriage to come under a microscope so you can diagnose what's actually happening. It wants you as a parent and a neighbor and a citizen of the country that you live in and a follower of Christ, come under the microscope and let it do its examination. And in examining you, It is not judgment to condemn you. It's judgment to tell you who you really are. That should be happening to some of you right now. As the word of God comes out, it's calling you into a deeper relationship with God and a deeper knowledge of who you are and how God is shaping you and forming you and moving you. Here's a prayer that is aligned with this kind of acknowledgement of the word of God that I think we would all do better to pray more. It comes from David in Psalm chapter 139 and I believe it's alive for our time. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. For the context of what we're studying this morning, know my places of unrest. Know the things that worry me and keep me up at night search me, put me under your lens and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That prayer is accomplished in an examination, a meditation and a submission to the word of God in your life. When we say be diligent to enter the rest, we are saying, Be disciplined to trust in the word of God. And the more you trust him, the more peace you have for every area of your life that the word of God is speaking on. It says it has the power to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This is why I think sometimes the preacher gets the accusation that he's following around members of the congregation as he preaches the sermon, as he shares his anecdotes, as he gives his application from time to time, he may hear, were you reading my journal? (laughs) Maybe some of you have felt that. Certainly not anything that I've done, but it is something that the power of the word of, of God has over your life. You don't have to experience it only on a Sunday morning. You can experience it as you open the word and it speaks to your life. It discerns your thoughts. And for the purpose of the case to enter the rest and the importance of trusting the word, it says that it knows the intents of the heart. This is the crux of entering the rest. The intent of your heart. In other words, what do you actually believe? The the author of Hebrews is saying they didn't believe The promise. The gospel was preached to them. And the gospel is preached to you. The word went out. They received it. And now the word is going to examine, do you believe it? Of all the ways the gospel has been exalted this morning, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the sovereignty of God to overcome the darkness of our age with his glorious light. The good works that he has planned for you. The saving grace that he won you by. The command to love him and love your neighbor as the satisfaction of your soul. Do you believe it? That is the question of your rest. And I assure you in a line with the author of Hebrews, seen Psalm 95 and the rebellion as the hardening of their heart, wherever there is unrest in your life, where there is unrest in your categories, the marriage on the rocks, the family on the brink, the finances that seem stressful, there is an intent of your heart that is not fully given over to trusting God wholly and completely. Because where you trust God, you have complete rest. Remember when you, for those of you who are married, were in that stage of wondering do they like you back? Will they say yes if you ask them out? Is this going to go the distance? That's called, not dating, that's called relational unrest. <laughs> And then something very powerful happens. You give each other your word. It's a covenant. It's a promise. You make it before God and all of your witnesses. And with that word, your relationship is at rest. By the design of God, you are now called to live together at rest, that you will die together. And that is a small picture of a covenant rest that you have with God. Do you believe him? Do you believe that he will uphold his part of the covenant? Do you believe that he is going to actually deliver on his promise? And the answer for those of you who have professed Christ as Savior and Lord is yes. And the exhortation is to make it yes every day to be diligent while it is today to believe in God. (laughs) To not believe in him the day you were saved and check in once in a while, but to be diligent that the word of God is something that you are trusting with your whole life completely and daily. And we'll conclude with the final picture That should bring all of us to an acknowledgement that God knows the intents of our heart. He knows where we trust him and he knows where we don't. And he can reveal even areas we don't even know. Verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I ask the question, what you really believe. God knows. God knows why you're here. God knows why you read his word, when you read his word. God knows the areas of your life where you trust other things instead of him. The word of God penetrates and exposes you. And to use this image that we would be naked in his sight, At first, it's terrifying, and then it's purifying. In Genesis 3, we get this picture where man and woman have sinned. They've disobeyed. They've stopped trusting in the Word of God, and they realize they're naked, and what do they do? We laugh at them. They make some clothes out of fig leaves. Of course, God is not fooled. That is the fear that God knows who they really are. And as we laugh at their fig leaves, we cover up in all of our own ways. It can be very fearful to be that open with the God who made you. But it is how you are cleansed. No one showers with clothes on. Here I am, Lord. Search me. All of me. Know me from the depths of my heart and reveal to things in me that you can take from untrust and unrest to faith and peace. The application is very easy. Be diligent to trust God. And I can't think of an easier way to ask you to start that than by saying, God, I will be a person... (laughs) who wants to know your word. Where you feel unrest in your life, find out what God's word has to say and see what happens. Put your trust in God's word and see the peace that will follow your life.